0: I bring you a message today from the people of Ireland. The Irish desire peace with England and with the rest of the world. It is a question of a republic. And we want the creation of a new Ireland. I wish to talk to you this evening about the state of the nations. I wish to, to I wish to talk to you this evening about <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the History of Ireland. Last week we left things on quite the juicy cliffhanger with the talks on a knife's edge after Deb's letter to the Pope and the discovery of weapons headed to Ireland from Germany. But what happens next is less about a clash between the Irish and the British and more about internal conflict within both groups. After the Sixth Plenary Session, when things were looking like they were about to fall apart, the Irish delegates left 10 Downing Street and immediately began composing a letter to Dev, basically to figure out what the hell they could do to stop the talks collapsing. They argued that any importing of weapons into Ireland needed to stop during the course of the talks. And they asked for Dev's stance on whether or not he was willing to end the talks over the matter of an oath of allegiance to the Crown. Collins was then forced to rush back to Dublin that weekend with a letter for Dev and minutes from the catastrophe that was the sixth plenary session. De Valera called a cabinet meeting, assuming Collins wanted to speak about the papal letter. But instead what followed was a dance we're all too familiar with, with Collins begging Dev to join the delegations in London, while Dev continued to argue that he should stay. As historian Patrick Murray puts it, Dev wanted to act as, quote, a final court of appeal to avert whatever Britain might attempt to put over, and if anything went wrong, he would be on hand to rally the people and prepare them for resistance. But Collins and the other delegates were pretty sure that the final appeal would be pretty much needed right now. So it was a bit of a wasted trip for Collins and he arrived back in London at 5am on the morning of Monday the 24th. Lord George and the British were expecting the Irish's answer on their Pledge of Allegiance, Membership of the Empire and Naval Defenses. Unfortunately, Dev had provided no real guidance on any of these matters, and the delegates were left to figure out things for themselves. The seventh plenary session was slated to begin at 4.30 that day, and the delegates scrambled to get a written answer to the British in time. We've all been there. An assignment is due. Not enough work's been done. There's a deadline looming. Oh, and it's a group assignment at that. They're the worst but the plenipotentiaries submitted their papers at 3.20. And this didn't go down well with Lloyd George. He opened the meeting saying, the memorandum was received too late for proper examination. And he kind of wasn't all that pleased with the answers that the Irish had given either. The way the British saw it, they had, quote, refused or evaded the three key questions. And the Irish really had. It was here that we get to the closest point where external association was discussed with the British. It didn't particularly go well. The letter stipulated that Ireland, quote, consented to adhere to the Commonwealth for all purposes of agreed common concern. To which Lord George replied, are you prepared to come inside the empire like New Zealand and Canada? Griffith responded, this is not quite our idea of association. But Lloyd George pushed further. Association is not the position of Canada and Australia. What is the distinction between association and coming inside the empire? As Freeman puts it in her book, rather at a loss, Griffith responded, we should be associated with you outside that free people. I think this made as much sense to the British as it probably does to URI. No one still had a clear idea of what de Valera wanted from external association, and this was Griffith's best attempt at, at trying to explain something that he didn't come up with. Seeing clearly that they were getting nowhere, Birkenhead jumped in to discuss neutrality and British access to Irish naval bases. Here, Griffith did concede some ground, saying, we accept the principle that your security should be looked after. And with that small concession and a lot of confusion, the British delegation left the room. The seventh plenary session ended, but Lloyd George asked if he could meet Collins and Griffith privately. Though it was all a little baffling, Lloyd George was actually kind of hopeful. For one, the Irish were conceding in small areas, like with defence. And two, Collins and Griffith agreed to the private meeting. Lloyd George liked this idea because he believed that Collins and Griffith would be, quote, likely to discuss issues more freely, without the likes of Barton, Gavin Duffy and Childers around. So later that day, Lloyd George, Chamberlain, Collins and Griffith all spoke in private for just over an hour. And this structure would prove way more effective than the plenary sessions. In fact, the plenary sessions all but stopped and were replaced with these subcommittees or private meetings. There were 24 in total and the attendance speaks volumes. Griffith attended 22 and Collins 19. Barton only went to three and Gavin Duffy and Duggan only attended two each. Childers, as a secretary, he didn't get to go to any of them. This was important, as though he wasn't a plenipotentiary, he was still hugely influential, an obstinate Republican, and basically devs' eyes and ears at the talks. This first private talk ended with Griffith and Collins agreeing to dominion status but only if partition was done away with and Ulster became a part of the new Irish Free State. This was good enough for Lloyd George to keep the talks going. To me, it seems like this marks an important turning point where Griffith and Collins stopped trying to negotiate with Dev in the back of their mind and began making more of their own decisions. That's not to say that they totally threw out Dev's thinking or would not go on to consult him frequently, but you do begin to see them diverging from Dev's unclear ideas of external association and whatnot. As Freeman puts it, Griffith viewed the change towards subcommittees as a minor victory, giving him a freer hand in the negotiations. But having said that, that evening Griffith wrote a memo to Dev, following it up with another letter on Tuesday, relaying what the situation was. He wrote that, in the end, I told him that no Irishman could even discuss with his countrymen any association with the British Crown unless the essential unity of Ireland was agreed to. Basically, we'll consider an oath as long as the British ditch partition. Dev was absolutely furious with this and he wrote back, We are all here at one, that there can be no question of our asking the Irish people to enter an arrangement which would make them subject to the crown, or demand from them allegiance to the British King. If war is the alternative, we can only face it, and I think that the sooner the other side is made to realise that, the better." Dev's response didn't arrive in London until Wednesday, the 26th of October. And Dev's anger was matched by that of Griffith, who declared, I will go home unless the cabinet left our hands free. But if Griffith was angry, Collins was even more pissed. Both historians Freeman and Ronan Fanning use the phrase towering rage to describe the big fella's reaction With him declaring, Those in Dublin are trying to put me in the wrong so I could do the dirty work for them. In the end, both Griffith and Collins wrote a letter, which they convinced the other plenipotentiaries to sign, threatening to cancel the whole negotiations and return to Dublin immediately. It said, The responsibility, if this interference breaks the very slight possibility there is of settlement, will not and must not rest with the plenipotentiaries. So we had just about avoided a collapse of the talks with the British and now we are facing the whole Irish delegation storming off and going home. Let's take a second to figure out why they were so mad. Firstly, there's the simple fact that the plenipotentiaries did not like the ultimatum Dev had given them. Dev had decided it was to be war, just as Collins and Griffith saw a way forward. Secondly, it seems like they were finally getting sick of Dev interfering with the complicated talks while refusing to attend them. It was impossible for the delegates to make any headway if Dev kept making these sweeping statements from the back seat. Remember, it was less than a week since his ridiculous letter to the Pope. And finally, here you see a really clear indication of where Griffith and Collins differed from Dev, Stack and Brewer. Griffiths and Collins were both famously practical. And Griffiths in particular didn't seem to care at all about an oath to the king. Remember, he started as a dual monarchist. If they could gain 32 counties with no partition. They didn't care they had to utter some words to a king. And they saw dominion status as a huge step forward, something that was constantly evolving, providing more and more actual freedom and independence from Britain. Dev, on the other hand, put a lot more stock in the oath. He didn't think the Irish population would stand for it and some argue that his religion played into it. Dev's Catholicism would not allow him to swear an oath to the head of the Church of England. The two were incompatible. Despite all this, Dev backed down when he received the letter from the plenipotentiaries. He replied, saying, There was obviously a misunderstanding. There could be no question of tying the hands of the plenipotentiaries beyond the extent to which they are tied by their original instructions. He continued, The letter was nothing more than an attempt to keep you in touch with the views of members of the cabinet here on the various points as they arise. Interestingly, Dev actually mirrored Collins' worry, later writing, Those in London were looking for an excuse to return and throw the blame of breakdown of negotiations on us who were at home. Regardless of what Dev said, or what he was thinking, from here on out he communicated a lot less frequently with Griffith and the delegates. This freed up Griffith and Collins hugely, and allowed them to plough ahead relatively unhindered in their negotiations with the British. But these were worrying cracks on the Irish side. Cracks that would soon develop into full-on fractures as time went on. Now, the British were oblivious to all of this internal conflict among the Irish. And to be honest, Lloyd George and Chamberlain were too busy with their own issues. In the original British proposals for the talks, the British government had stipulated that an agreement, quote, must allow for full recognition of the existing powers and privileges of the government of Northern Ireland, which cannot be abrogated except by their own consent. Tory hardliners were worried that with the Irish coming around to the idea of Dominion status, if they got a unified Ireland, well, that this stipulation might be ignored. There was a lot of talk that they would turn on Lloyd George. And this came to a head around the same time that the Irish were fighting over a letter with Dev. On Thursday, the 27th, Lloyd George decided to push the die-hard Tories to put their money where their mouth was, asking them to decide whether or not to continue with negotiations, writing, It is quite clear we cannot proceed with this conference unless we know the House of Commons supports us. And so, a vote was scheduled on Monday the 31st of October. This meant that Lloyd George only had a few days to do a whole lot of manoeuvring. First, he worked to bring the Irish to a position he could leverage against the diehard Tories. To do this, he focused on everything but Ulster. His thinking was, if he could agree on everything else, then as he put it, they could, quote, consider any machinery by which unity of Ireland should be organised. On Thursday morning, he wrote a stern memo to the Irish, once again pushing for dominion status, saying they must have a definitive understanding upon these vital questions. The plan was for Lloyd George to play bad cop, restating the ultimatum for the Irish, while his deputy secretary, Tom Jones, played good cop, meeting with Collins and Griffith on the side. Jones made it clear to the Irish that the memo was not Lloyd George's real stance, as the harshness was meant to keep the Tories happy. With this in mind, on Saturday, the Irish responded to Lloyd George's memo. In it, they stated that the Crown would be recognised as a symbol and accepted head of the combination of signatory states if... Ireland secured unimpaired unity and unfettered possession of all legislative and executive authority. This was a step forward, and one Lord George was happy with. But it still wasn't enough to go into the House vote on Monday. He needed more. And so a meeting was held at Churchill's home with Griffith, Collins, Churchill, Birkenhead and Chamberlain on Sunday night. Now, over the course of the negotiations, Lloyd George had warmed to Griffith. We'd said before that he wasn't that big a fan of him. By now, it turns out he was, saying that Griffith was a pretty considerable man. And he wanted more and more to deal with Griffith alone. This was partly down to the fact that Griffith was quite sympathetic to Lloyd George's precarious political position. Collins, on the other hand, had very little time for the internal British squabbles. So, on Sunday night, it was agreed that Griffith and Lloyd George would sit together one on one while Collins worked with the others. The private meeting between Griffith and Lloyd George would turn out to be quite important. Fortunately, though, we have very little information about it, and all we can rely on is Griffith's letter back to death. But here's what we know At the meeting, Lloyd George explained that he was trying to quell the revolt slowly developing among the Tory diehards. To do so, he needed ammunition from the Irish. He knew that arguably they couldn't alter their official stance for now. But if he could get what Griffith described as personal assurances, Lord George would have what he needed to shut down the diehards. So he asked for Griffith's personal assurances on the oath to the crown on free partnership with the Empire and on continued access to Ireland's naval facilities. Griffith agreed to, quote, recommend a recognition of the Crown as long as we were satisfied with the other points of issue. Then, according to Griffith, Lloyd George promised to, as Freeman puts it, go all out for Ireland's essential unity. Griffith then described how the group broke up. Saying They indicated that if they were certain of real goodwill on our side, they would take risks and fight. We parted on the understanding that they would go strongly against the diehard attack and go strongly for peace with Ireland in the debate. With the assurances from Griffith, Lord George was happy to do just that. And it helped Lord George, but he was still in a tricky situation. The next day, he had to deal with the Ulster Unionists. At this point, he actually considered an election to be rid of them altogether. The PM's thinking was maybe he could call a snap election, side with another party, and be done with the Unionists and the Tories. But he quickly decided this was just too risky. I wonder how Brexit would have turned out if Theresa May had been as equally cautious. Instead, he was forced to, as one newspaper put it, buy off the Ulster vote, promising to give more power to the Northern Irish Parliament that had been created by the Government of Ireland Act. This is kind of at odds with everything he promised to Griffith the night before regarding essential unity. And either Griffith misunderstood Lloyd George, the slippery Welshman had simply lied, or the deal he was making in public did not match his private plans. Regardless, it worked a treat for now, and the Ulster Unionists were happy not to turn on Lloyd George in the vote. And so that Monday, he won by a landslide. He gave a thunderous speech that had the whole House, quote, roaring its applause. This kind of threw Griffith and Collins for a bit of a loop. The next day Collins was chatting to Tom Jones, telling him that he felt rather disappointed and flat, thinking the situation was very much more difficult than anticipated in view of what had taken place on Sunday night. Jones reassured Collins, saying unless a reasonable compromise was reached on Ulster, he said the PM would resign rather than start a war of reconquest. It said that this kept Griffith happy, and so that night Griffith wrote a draft of the quote, personal letter, which would lay out the assurances he'd agreed to in the meeting at the weekend. However, the other delegates were not happy. Gavin Duffy, Barton and Childers all quote, strenuously opposed the sending of a personal letter. And that Sunday night, as Griffith wrote it, things got heated. Barton describes how Griffith made use of some very abusive language to Duffy. The letter was drafted and redrafted and redrafted again with everyone arguing and fighting and getting annoyed at each other. But in the end, it pretty much stayed where Griffith started. He would agree to dominion status within the British Commonwealth and an oath to the Crown as long as Ulster was folded back into the new Irish state. A 32-county, dominion state within the British Empire. That's what Griffith was agreeing to. And this was delivered to the British on Thursday, the 3rd of November. With the letter in hand, Lord George had a weapon by which to deal with the Unionists and their leader, James Craig, who arrived into 10 Downing Street on Saturday, November 5th, Two days later. That afternoon, Lord George laid out his plans for Ulster to join an all-Irish parliament. Craig was having none of it, and would later describe this day as Black Saturday, for it will always stand out in my memory as one of the darkest days that I have had to deal with since I have been associated with the Ulster question. And the following Monday, the 7th, he and the Ulster Unionists further shut down, with Bono Law saying they would not give up on, quote, everything for which they had been fighting for 35 years. This was not good for Lloyd George. He had the Irish willing to make huge sacrifices. He just needed the Unionists to come to the table. Jones described how the PM was more depressed than I had ever seen him at all since the negotiations began. What's fascinating here, though, is that if you look at it from a certain point of view, and with the benefit of hindsight, the Ulster Unionists and the Tories were kind of shooting themselves in the foot. They had always said that they were working hard to save the integrity of the British Empire. If any part of Ireland was to leave the empire, it would greatly hurt Britain. Why would the likes of Canada or India stay associated with the British Empire from thousands of miles away, when the island right beside Britain didn't want to have anything to do with them? But Lloyd George and Griffith had kind of solved this. If the Irish were happy to take dominion status, well, then they would remain within the empire. Thus, saving the integrity of the whole thing, the Unionists could stay part of the British Empire. The Irish would get their independence. It kind of mirrors what eventually happened with the EU. Before Brexit, that is. But now, the Unionists were standing in the way of all of this. Basically, forcing the Irish... To take something other than dominion status, and therefore demonstrably damaging the concept of the British Empire. It's a classic example of spite your nose to save your face. Regardless, the Ulster Unionists refused to budge, and it left Lloyd George in a difficult position. But the Welsh wizard was never one to give up easily. As he explained to Jones, there is just one other possible way out. And he asked him to, quote, find out from Griffith and Collins if they will support me on a boundary commission. Namely, that the 26 counties should take their own Dominion Parliament and then have a boundary commission. The boundary commission was a concept that had been used quite effectively after World War I. It's defined as a legal entity that determines borders of nations, states and constituencies and has been used everywhere from Afghanistan to Indonesia. Lloyd George saw it as the only way out of the Ulster problem. Maybe, just maybe, the Irish would still take Dominion status if a boundary commission was used to decide that Ireland gained more than the 26 counties. Remember, Griffith always had the idea to try and make Northern Ireland as small as possible so it wasn't viable in the long term. So on Tuesday, November 8th, Jones was sent to float this with Collins and Griffith. Lloyd George knew he was not as well trusted and thought the idea of a boundary commission would be better received if it seemed like it was coming from Jones rather than himself. Jones went to Griffith and Collins and broached the idea with them. He describes how Griffith was a closed book, while Collins was obviously very much upset, saying that a boundary commission would, quote, sacrifice unity entirely. Jones, ever the good cop, well, he agreed, but countered, saying, what was the alternative? Chaos? Crown colony government? Civil war? After the meeting, Griffith wrote to Dev, laying out the situation. Craig is standing put, he said. refuses to come under any All-Ireland Parliament. Refuses to change six-county area. Lord George may resign. Boner Law would probably form a militarist government against Ireland. But Griffith also said that he didn't hate the idea of a boundary commission, explaining to Dev, it would delimit Ulster and give us most of Tyrone, Fermanagh, and part of Armagh, down, etc. He also laid out that we did not give a definite opinion on the matter. It is their lookout for the moment. He signed off saying that if talks were to collapse, that it would be the unionists' fault. Quote, it would end on the note of Ulster being impossibilist. This suited de Valera just fine and he was actually pretty delighted with how Grivet had played things so far. Dev always liked the idea of the talks collapsing due to the Ulsterman's stubbornness, as he knew it played well politically and would make Sinn Féin look good in the global press. If the Irish delegation was seen to be trying its best to come to peace while Ulster wasn't budging, well, that just made the Unionists look like the bad guys and put Sinn Féin and the Irish in a pretty good position, all things considered. And what follows is a weird situation, where it became Lloyd George and Griffith on one side, with Craig and the Ulstermen on the other. And for now, they were all at a total standstill. What follows is some masterful machinations by the Welsh wizard, as he took a few vague words and use them to manipulate all sides into a compromise that suited him. But after yet another mammoth episode, we'll leave it there. I was hoping to get to the signing of the treaty before Christmas, but there's just so much to cover, and I don't know about you, but I find it all so interesting. So unfortunately, we'll have to wait until the new year to see what happens next. Over the next few weeks, I've got a friend's wedding, I'm away, then there's Christmas. So we'll be back in the new year. Sit tight, have a great Christmas, and I cannot wait to get into the final few weeks, days, and hours of the treaty negotiations. Thanks for listening. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and if you're enjoying it, give us a review on Apple Podcasts or tell your friends really helps you can also support the show buy merch and get in touch all through our website thehistoryofireland.com or you can follow us on facebook or twitter it's always great hearing from you guys and if i've made a mistake please do let me know the history of ireland was written and produced by me kevin dole additional research and fact checking by robert babington music by Liam Doyle. and additional help from assistant producer eva murphy this podcast was recorded in the lands of a wurundjeri people of the coolant nation sovereignty was never seen